I love Colorado and I love going out for hikes. I love going for bike rides. I, I love doing anything outdoors. And I have a vision of what Colorado has looked like. Um, and I know what it looks like now. And um, I guess I have memories of what it looked like. I know what it looks like now. And I have kind of a, uh, 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 an optimistic and a pessimistic vision of what it's going to look like 20 years, 30 years, 50 years down the road. And I certainly don't want Colorado to look like this terrible landscape that was described in that author's book. Um, I want Colorado to look like the beautiful state that it is. But we can already see here in Colorado, even if you don't even look at it um, uh, too closely, we can see the effects of climate change now here in Colorado. It's just that it happens somewhat slowly or, or maybe slower than people really pay attention to, but it's here. to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Hey, Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast listeners, welcome back. This episode is brought to you by my friends over at Relish Studio. Check them out on the web at relishstudio.com. They are a digital marketing firm devoted to purpose-driven business leaders, and their goal is to guide and support their customers as they realize the full potential of marketing to fuel both business and personal growth. Speaking from personal experience, I have worked with Relish on websites, logo design, and in fact, the editing of this very podcast. I can't say enough about them. And my friend Stu is just a wonderful human. He is totally in alignment in terms of environment and sustainability, two things I'm very passionate about. And in fact, their entire business is a 1% for the planet partner which means they're giving back a percentage of their revenue to environmental causes and organizations. I just love these guys. I can't say enough about them. If you decide to check them out and you want to hire them for a new job, make sure you mention the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast to them, and they will offer you a 10% discount off of their normal rate on their first engagement with you. Check them out, relishstudio.com. Hey listeners, welcome back to the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast. This week we dive into a semi-serious topic that can go either way, optimistic, pessimistic, realistic. It can be a really big thing to wrap one's head around. The impetus for the show and, and inviting this guest on is this really cool book I bought by a woman named Sarah Wilson. It's called This One Wild and Precious Life. I should back up and say I don't need a book to be an impetus for me to talk about the climate and climate change and climate crisis that we're in. Um, but this book has just really been hitting home, hitting hard. Uh, it's provoked a few sleepless nights. I would say read it before bed at your own risk, but it is highly, highly recommended. Very, very good read. It's brand new, uh, includes much discussion about COVID, so it's very relevant and on point and um, some of the statistics that she's, she lays down about the climate and where we're headed, not well off into the future, but imminently by 2030, if not sooner, 
really provoked a lot in me and led me to reach out to someone I consider an expert in this area. This is my friend and fellow attorney, Mike Foote. We met through bike advocacy through legislation. You'll hear on the show how he actually helped me get a new law passed last year. One of our few wins in 2020 called the bike lane bill, where we wrote a law that says motorists must yield to cyclists and bike lanes here in the state of Colorado. And that was a direct result of me being hit by a car when I was in the bike lane in 2019, May of 2019. Uh, I should restate that when I was hit by a driver. It was not her car that hit me. It was a driver. And Mike and I have stayed in touch ever since. And he now owns a law firm called The Foot Law Firm. You can find him online at foot, F-O-O-T-E, lawfirm.net. And he specializes in environmental law and specifically on the side of the planet and more specifically on the side of the planet and resources here in the state of Colorado. So I hope you find this interview as informative and inspiring and hope filled and with a you know, healthy dose of reality too, as I did, and that you will join him in his fight and um, his, his, we excuse me, his website is intended to be a resource for people looking for ways and places they can dig in and get involved. So definitely reach out to him if you have a pull on your heartstrings to dig in on any one of the multiple aspects of climate work here in the state of Colorado or here in the country, and he will certainly point you in the right direction. Um, grab a copy of this book if you are so inclined. There was also a really great recent article about our favorite teenager, Greta, in The Guardian that I highly recommend that you read about her work in the environmental space and how she's gearing up to talk to world leaders here in the next month or so about these issues. Um, hope this finds you well. Hope this leaves you with some inspiration as always. And um, thanks so much for listening. Have a good day. Listeners, welcome back to the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast. I am so grateful to be joined today by guest and friend Mike Foote, founder of the Foot Law Firm here in Colorado. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Megan. It's great to be on. It's great to chat with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, as I said to you before we hit record, you know, the show is all about me having guests who I respect and admire, teach me things that I want to know, and selfishly then. If I think I'm interested in something, then perhaps people who are listening hopefully are as well. And we have some really cool, very specific, very important topics that we're going to dive into today that really do affect all of us. And really, that's on the issue of climate and environment. And I'm hoping that you can teach us some things since this is your specialty, um, specifically here in Colorado. And I'm so excited to dive into these topics with you. Well, I'm definitely happy to do it, but before I do that, I just want to say that respect is mutual as well. I mean, all the good work that you do, uh, particularly on behalf of the cycling community and just Colorado in general, as uh, someone who fortunately so far has not been, not had to retain you for an injury, knock on wood, but uh, I know that those that have, have have been very grateful. And all the real good work you do on the advocacy level and above and beyond, it's been great. So I, I'm just really pleased to be here and, and happy to help you out any way I can. 
Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. For our listeners, just a bit of background context. Mike is also a cyclist, former legislator, former district attorney, and I had the great privilege of co-writing a bill that we sort of nicknamed the bike lane bill back in 2020, and it was passed into law in July of 2020. It was one of the few wins of 2020 in my life anyway, but uh, here in Colorado, we now have a law, thanks to Mike, that says motorists shall yield to cyclists in bike lanes, give or take. That's what it says. So thank you so much for your help in that. And I've no doubt that you're going to take your, um, your acumen and your background and your, and your influence into this environmental space now and make the world a better place for us in this arena, which is so important because quite frankly, our lives depend upon it. This is as much as I believe cycling can save the world, you know, cycling is a small part of this climate crisis pie. And we could certainly talk for hours and wax poetic on how bikes can save us on the climate front. Um, but today isn't really about bikes. It really is about the climate and environment, environmental law specifically. And I have been reading this amazing book called This One Wild and Precious Life by this woman named Sarah Wilson. She's out of Australia. And as I was mentioning to you, I almost can't read it before bed because it gets me so worked up because the big focus she talks about is our climate crisis that we're in. And I was just going to read a couple paragraphs to kind of tee off our discussion and get your thoughts on this. Um, she says, whether we are a climate activist or climate skeptic, privileged or disadvantaged, we can all see we live on an overcrowded planet that can't feed and house us all. We will not be able to avoid the food and water shortages, droughts, crop destruction, fires, wildlife extinction, job losses, new diseases, and refugee explosions. We will not be able to ignore the rising waters submerging Bangladesh, Calcutta, and New York, or that rice, avocados, and 85% of wine crops will be gone by 2050, or that the crumbling coastlines will see 40% of Australia's beaches disappear in our kids' lifetime. We can't viably argue when we cast aside ideology and other cognitive biases that we don't understand the simple math of extracting more resources from a finite system, nor the simple physics and chemistry of trapping heat in a closed atmosphere with increasing CO2 concentrations. We can't claim those images of burning koalas and starving polar bears don't exist, and we sure as hell cannot ignore the global unraveling that COVID-19 dumped into the equation. We'd been getting away with turning a blind eye to the unsustainability of so much destruction and disruption, but coronavirus planted the elephant on our laps and said, here, deal with it. Climate scientists predicted such a pandemic as one of the many life-threatening outcomes of the emergency, and a number of researchers from across disciplines argue the destruction of biodiversity via mining, hunting, logging, family factory farming, as well as bulging populations is what created the conditions for COVID-19. And she quotes this author, David Quammen, author of Spillover, who says, we cut the trees, we kill the animals or cage them and send them to markets. We disrupt ecosystems and we shake viruses loose from their natural hosts. When that happens, they need a new host and often we are it. It goes on and on and on. I have the goosebumps right now as I sit here. Um, and that's what I said. I really have a hard time reading this before bed. You're on the front lines of the environmental law battle on behalf of the resources, on behalf of the state, on behalf of this beautiful place called Colorado that we personally call home. What are you seeing in your practice? What are the emerging areas of concern, 
the clients that you represent. I mean, give us the give us the thirty thousand foot view as it looks here in Colorado. I know we have a lot of fracking, a lot of mining, a lot of drilling. We have water issues, air quality issues. You know, where do you see this really being? Where where are we headed? What what does this look like? Give us the landscape. Yeah, well, um, a number of things there. First of all, I think you've really hit the nail on the head as to why I don't read climate books. Um, <laughs> before bed or, or after work or really pretty much um, any time if I can avoid it because it's just, it's really grim. I mean, certainly I keep track of the latest in news and predictions, but um, man, you know, what you just read is, is really depressing. So, uh, and, you know, there's two ways people can react to that. And I think that has led us to where we are now, which is the number one way people could react is say, I'm going to take action. I'm going to make this better. The number two way could be, this is too big of a problem. I'm just going to worry about putting food on the table tonight or making sure I have my job tomorrow. And so we see people kind of diverge. And uh, unfortunately, I think at least up until maybe recently, maybe even through now, we've had a lot of people that have taken the second path, which is it's too big of a problem. I'm just going to deal with what's in front of me, which is not to discount what's in front of people. Of course, it's important to have shelter. It's important to have food. It's important to take care of your families. Um, it's important to get back and forth to work. But um, sometimes I think people do that to the exclusion of seeing the bigger picture, which is what is our planet going to look like in 20 years? What is Colorado going to look like in 20 years? And that's really the question that I've asked myself and started asking myself several years ago, what is Colorado going to look like in 20 years? Because like you and like I'm sure all of your listeners, I love Colorado and I love going out for hikes. I love going for bike rides. I, I love doing anything outdoors. And I have a vision of what Colorado has looked like. Um, and I know what it looks like now. And um, I guess I have memories of what it looked like. I know what it looks like now, and I have kind of an, uh, 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 an optimistic and a pessimistic vision of what it's going to look like 20 years, 30 years, 50 years down the road. And I certainly don't want Colorado to look like this terrible landscape that was described in that author's book. Um, I want Colorado to look like the beautiful state that it is. But we can already see here in Colorado, even if you don't even look at it, um, uh, too closely, we can see the effects of climate change now here in Colorado. It's just that it happens somewhat slowly or, or maybe slower than people really pay attention to, but it's here. We see it. We see the effect of beetle kill, uh, which is extraordinary given the fact that we have uh, climate that allows the beetles to live through the winter now instead of beforehand. We see, of course, the effect of fires, which again, we've always had fires, but they're much more intense now. Um, last year, I think people know that we had the three biggest fires in Colorado's recorded history just in one year. Um, the fourth biggest fire now was, uh, I think it was the Hayman fire in 2002, which um, now was almost 20 years ago. But I remember, and maybe you remember, and your listeners remember, that was such a huge deal when that fire hit because it was the biggest fire in Colorado history. It was news constantly for a couple of months. And... <laughs> Then all of a sudden, last year, we have three fires that were bigger than that one in Colorado and the kind of damage that it's, it's spawned. And 
the effects that it's had has really affected me even more so, um, even though I was on board with protecting the climate before that. So um, that's, you know, I think you also kind of mentioned COVID in that passage. Um, you know, the author makes the connection between COVID and climate. I think COVID is something we all can identify with because it's hit us all in a personal way. And even those that haven't gotten sick with it or lost a yep. family member to it, but yep. just the changes in our lives. And I feel like, um, I, I hope this isn't the case, but it could be the case that uh, people aren't really going to be making changes, real changes in their lives until they get hit with what climate change looks like. So, you know, for me, it was just, going on hikes and seeing the damage from beetle kill or knowing the effects of the devastating fires. But it could be for the family farmer that's had the farm in their family for generations, having to lose the farm because there's no more water for the farm. That's right. Or it could be somebody that lives in a small town in the mountains whose home is suddenly uninsurable yeah. and they, they can't insure the house. A fire comes through, burns the house, they lose their possessions and they can't recover them. It could be, many, many things that affects people in a very personal way. It seems like human nature is such that you don't really start paying attention until you really see that. I really hope that's not the case, um, but it could take something like that in order for people to really, really um, pay attention and, and really make changes to do something about it. Yeah, someone just today phrased that for me. Um, my partner said he read an article uh, where it's this mindset shift of going from me to we. And as you said, sometimes we are slow to come to those things when it means giving some things up. Um, you and I being cyclists, you know, we already adopt the, cyc the cycling mindset as not just recreation and, and workouts and fitness and mental and physical health management, but we also commute by bike and we leave our perfectly warm contained vehicle at home and we choose to ride our bike because it's not only good for us, it's good for the environment. And, um, you know, we, we can choose to not use single use plastic and we can choose not to buy bottled water single, you know, there's all kinds of small decisions that we all make that add up, but I'd like to talk about some of the work that you're specifically doing. You're a few years into your law firm. Now the foot law firm, um, remind our listeners of the website. Yeah. Pretty original name, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's perfect. Just, it's just footlawfirm.net. Is the and uh, just so everyone knows, the foot ends in an E, so right. footlawfirm.net. And um, give us a sampling of some of the types of work that you as a lawyer, with the clients that you represent, these entities, these nonprofits, like what are some of the specific projects, initiatives, you know, what are you working on? What are your clients working on? Yeah, happy to. Uh, first, uh, I'll, I'll give just a little bit of background because it gives pretty good context for where I am now and why I'm there, which as you mentioned at the beginning, I, I've been a lawyer now since 2002, and I spent most of my law career as a prosecutor, although eight of those years I overlapped with being in the state legislature, six of those years as a state representative and two years as a state senator. So um, really, that's where I really developed my um, passion for the environment and things that we can do for the environment. I, I guess... I shouldn't say I developed my passion there because I had a passion for the environment, as I described. I mean, I love Colorado and its environment and have forever. But um, but I really developed a, a good sense of what we can do to help protect it in the legislature. That wasn't part of the job description that we had in our office in as a prosecutor. So I didn't sure. really do anything there legally. 
But then I decided a few years ago to start my own law firm. And the question always is, what are you going to focus on? And of course, there's lots of things you could focus on. As a prosecutor, there's many that go into it to be criminal defense attorneys. You can do civil litigation. You can do things like that. But for me, it was not as much of what I could do, but what I really want to do and what would be productive use of my time, you know, assuming that I could get clients in that area. Um, I, you know, I could say I want to do something, you know, completely off the wall, but if I don't have any clients that can't make a right. living, that's not right. really going to work out. So <laughs> I had to make sure that I could do something and, and that I wanted to do it and I would have some kind of specific skill set that I could attract clients that would want to hire me to, to do something for them. And so I decided environmental law was really the way to go. And it was kind of an evolving decision. I mean, I wanted to, again, make sure that I could have a, a viable law practice, um, but you know, ultimately settled on doing environmental law. And so when I say environmental law, what I mean by that is environmental law that protects the environment. <laughs> there's, um, there's uh, I think this may be a bit of a pet peeve of mine, even more of a first world problem kind of issue, but you know, I have this issue for people that call themselves environmental attorneys that actually represent fossil fuel companies or represent polluters or things that damage the environment. I, that's just not the way that I, I want to do it. Um, and so I just wanted to, you know, I'd be I'm specific with people. I represent the environment and environmental interests in environmental law. So the kinds of things that I do is that I represent environmental groups and causes, community groups, nonprofits that are doing things to protect the environment. And that ranges from many things. It, it can range from some of the, the bigger picture items like you know climate change, um, litigation, or it could be litigation over oil and gas uh, development that's happening where a community group doesn't want it to happen. It could mean things like uh, more mundane things like following the proceedings every week of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission for a client and reporting back to them what they're doing or what they're not doing or where they could improve. Um, it could mean dealing with things that you may not necessarily think off the top of your head as being environmental, but dealing with the Solid Waste Act or some other kind of legislation that's there to actually protect the environment in some way, but it's not maybe at the top of people's minds. So it really ranges there. I like to, sometimes I use sports analogies a little bit too much, but maybe it'll be appropriate here. I like to think of myself for environmental groups that I represent as kind of a utility infielder. Um, someone that can come in and play many positions as needed. You know, a lot of times they'll have a capacity issue or uh, something will come across their desk that they want to work on someone just can't or frankly maybe they just don't want to or they don't have the expertise to do it and so they'll ask me to do it and i'm happy to do that it really contributes to the cause and it contributes to helping the environment in the way that one person can do i like it um are you able to give us a more specific or concrete example of something recently like when we're talking about air quality or water quality or land usage, land rights, you know, fracking and drilling is a big thing in any place that is heavy in minerals as we are here. Um, you know, can you give us something specific, like just as a Colorado and what am I probably unaware of that's actually a really big issue coming down the pike for us here in this state that really affects us? Uh, well, I'll start off with talking about the, um, the governmental body that probably 98% of Coloradans don't even know about, but Perfect. is super, super important in 
making sure that we can address the climate issue, which is the Air Quality Control Commission. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you talk about the Air Quality Control Commission, it's, it's often in this context of the alphabet soup of state government, but it's known as the AQCC. And they are actually a part-time commission whose job is to come up with rules and regulations that will reduce emissions. And emissions from oil and gas sources, emissions from transportation, emissions from um, heavy industrial facilities, you name it, that's their job under Colorado law. And so they have a very uh, hugely important job. Um, and a lot of responsibility has been placed on their shoulders to get that done. Colorado, as a result of legislation in 2019, has specific goals in law to reduce emissions. 26% from a 2005 baseline by 2025, which is not very far no. down the road. I mean, basically you know, less three than years. years. Right. Um, and it's 50 or 50% by 2030 and 90% by 2050. And so that's already in law as a result of what we passed in 2019. So really most of the responsibility up to now has gone to the Air Quality Control Commission. Um, so this could be the subject of a whole another podcast if anybody wanted to, but we could talk about whether or not they've been doing uh, sufficient work, um, whether or not they're up to the task, um, or what's holding them back or what's not. Uh, we could talk, and, and I just, just to summarize, I happen to think that they've got a lot of responsibility and I'm not really sure the structure can support them doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but at any rate, that's their job. And, and uh, right now they've got a very important rulemaking that's coming up that they've just started, meaning that it's not legislation that's passed, but they have to actually implement leg legislation that's been passed to reduce emissions from the oil and gas sector. Okay. Um, and so I, I've been, just an example, I've been working on that. It just started, I've been working on that for an environmental client, environmental group client, and really trying to do whatever we can to make those rules as strong as possible. It's sometimes with environmental causes, um, it's a game of incrementalism and doing the best you can given the circumstances that you have, which is totally not a satisfying explanation no. to people that read the kind of book that you, right. you mentioned before, because everybody wants action now and everybody right. wants it to change now. And the science tells us it has to change really, really quick in order for us to avoid the worst effects. The practical side of everything, though, is that you have to take your wins where you can, and you have to sure. um, you have to realize that you're David fighting Goliath. Totally. And you have to um, push the ball forward. If you only get halfway up the mountain, as opposed to the full the way up the mountain, and save the other half for the maybe the next year or the next six months. And so, really, the goal here, at least for my client, um, is to make sure that we can push the ball forward more so than what the state government wants to do at this point in time. So, mm. you know, it doesn't, that's not going to be something that's going to make um, the New York Times or any kind of great inspirational story necessarily. But I think looking back in history, say 10 years from now or 20 years from now, it's going to be a big part of success is making sure that we can make a difference in this kind of forum, but also that environmental groups can make a difference in every other type of forum too. Um, when you're one person, the question may be, what is it that I can do? And right. so my answer to the question has been, I will be a lawyer representing environmental groups and causes. And given the hours of the day, I will uh, hopefully find clients that will help me engage in things like this air quality control commission rulemaking or um, 
other things dealing with the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission or helping municipalities that want to put in more protective oil and gas regulations um, and engaging in litigation that uh, on, on the other side, not the fossil fuel side, but the other side on behalf of communities and on behalf of the environment. So one of the things that she cites in her book is essentially 70% of global pollution, more or less, comes from roughly 100, the 100 companies. Like there's, there's 100 big players in this realm that are doing the bulk of the damage. And she sort of talks about how we've tried to guilt people for their plastic grocery bags and things when the reality is there are some really big corporations that do really, I mean, we, yes, we all need to have personal responsibility. Don't hear me saying that every individual doesn't need to own their part, but also the gargantuan share of this, as you've alluded to, is really within these large um, corporations who are either ruining our air, factory farming, oil and gas, as you've mentioned. And so I'm curious when People contact you and say, hey, I'm also a lawyer. I've got a little time. I'd love to get involved in a nonprofit to help the environment. I'm really passionate about water or I'm really passionate about soil biodiversity. Um, are you a good resource or do you know of a good resource where people can say, I'd like to enroll or enlist myself or my help or my time in a nonprofit to try and help fight what you've described super appropriately as, as a David and Goliath fight. I mean, are you, is that something you're kind of even willing to do if people reach out to you and say, Hey, Mike, I'd love to get involved. Can you point me in the right direction based on my skill set and my interests? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, absolutely. My philosophy all along has been with these environmental issues that, um, that I'm contacted by folks and, and, and I talk with people and help people out, even if I'm not billing my time. I mean, I still have to bill time to some clients and make a living, but sure. my philosophy is if this particular person wins, then we all win. I mean, if, right. they are, if they are doing something that helps the environment and I can give them a half an hour of advice, then I'm more than happy to do that because that's going to help us all for sure. Um, there's plenty of things to do. I mean, the need is, is huge. Uh, it never ends. It just depends on people's interest. I think one of the areas where the fossil fuel companies have really excelled, and, and they've excelled because they have the resources to excel, is that they are involved in every phase of everything, from the genesis of an idea, through marketing, through communication, through legislation, countering activism. But then even when you pass successful legislation, like we did when I was in the legislature, at least a, a couple of times, they're also very good at monitoring how it's implemented, what rules come out, and how each commissioner for, say, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission will be likely to look at something. They have the people that can just monitor that. They're very good. And we need to kind of, you know, we need to show up to the extent that we can, too, and compete. Sure. It's, it's um, we're never going to be as well resourced as the fossil fuel companies. We're never going to have as many lawyers or as many lobbyists. And I don't really know what the environmental groups would look like if we did, but we're, we're not going to. So I kind of look at it from the philosophy of that movie, if you've watched it called Moneyball, you yeah. know, that's where uh, uh, Brad Pitt pay, plays the former player that turned into the GM of the Oakland A's. And, you know, he inherited a job where they had to do, they had to win with, hardly any resources. They couldn't compete with the Boston Red Sox or the New York Yankees with resources. So 
he had to find a better way to do it. Right. And he did through analytics um, and, uh, you know, the whole movie, of course, is about that. But but the first, you know, first thing to remember about that is he still had to field a team. Like you can't just abandon the field. You no. still have to field a team in order to, to be able to compete. So we as environmentalists have to still field a team. We just have to do it more efficiently. We have to do it better. We have to do it with less resources. And um, I think we can do it. I, I think we can. But we always have to make sure that we're playing on all of the playing field and not ignoring a big part of it. Um, we have to make sure that we're there from the beginning. We have to make sure that we're there through the political part, through the legislation, if that's the goal, through regulation, through implementation, because they are. They're right. there, and we have to be there, too. And this is gets into another bigger topic of um, you know regulatory capture, and it's a, it's a thing. It's a real thing where uh, the, the industry can come in and, and basically do what they want because the regulators defer to them, and... You know, That's a problem. It, and it is a huge problem. Yeah. Um, and in some places, you know, it's it's a problem that, that they bring upon themselves that I think that the regulators are inclined to do because they're sympathetic to the industry. Mm. In other places, I think it's partially because that's the only group that you're hearing from as a regulator. Sure. If you're only hearing from the industry, they've, all, they've got all the answers. You know, they can anticipate your questions. They can make it sound so good just like their commercials that they have about how they're reducing emissions, but really what they're doing is offloading their wells to a different subsidiary, so they're not really reducing emissions. It's just kind of the same old story. And so um, we just have to make sure we play everywhere, but we do it well and we do it in a smart way. There's always room for people to do that in whatever way they find interesting and whatever way they can contribute. There's no problems in finding people stuff to do there. I, I always do like to focus on the hopeful aspects of this because, yes, it can start to get quite dark. And when we talk about the David and Goliath, it feels insane to me that Goliath isn't planet Earth and David isn't these special interests. I mean, the fact that we all rely on this to live, to me, should be the Goliath. And, and yes, making money as a corporation is important, but it, it's truly incredible to think that we are fighting the uphill battle for the most obvious and the most important thing that any of us could stand for. And, um, you know, I understand that money, money talks and, you know, I think everyone is sort of incentivized to get what they can get within their lifetime for their family or their stockholders or shareholders or what have you. And we're not really making plans for our future selves. We're thinking about our present selves. Um, one thing that's recently given me hope is a friend who does work in oil and gas said that some of the big oil and gas companies are, are having harder and harder time um, getting the lending and the financial resources that they want because banks and private institutions are starting to say, you know what, um, while the government is doing its part with regulations, we're also, as, as a group of shareholders here at the bank, we believe so strongly in the environment that we're only going to lend to companies if they can demonstrate you know, X, Y, Z, um, you know, no more flaring at the natural gas sites or what have you. Are you seeing other places where that's happening, where basically private institutions and private citizens are also assisting the government entities in shaping this discussion? Yeah, well, ESG is a thing for sure. That's environmental social governance investing. Um, that's, okay. that's become a big thing, and it's it's been driven because individuals have stepped up and said, that we believe in X, Y, and Z, we believe in a strong government, we believe in diversity, whatever their cause is, 
and we want to make sure that our money is invested in companies that believe the same. And that that has become quite a thing, and and I'm really glad that it has. It's yeah. not really that regulated at this point. It's 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 come up um, because people have demanded it to come up, and so and companies have responded to that. And there's a number of companies that that do talk about instead of just saying it's all about shareholder value and how much money we can return to the shareholders. It's also about the community because that's what their shareholders are wanting. Sure. And so you have shareholders and you have um, folks that just are general investors that, that say, we want you to consider community interest as well as shareholder value. So they're willingly saying, if it requires us taking a little bit less, um, of a return, then we're willing to do that. And so you can apply that to any profession. I mean, with Absolutely. attorneys, it could be the same thing. You know, the, if you're an attorney and, and uh, you know, you're looking at taking on a fossil fuel client or not, you know, the bottom line is right now, fossil fuel clients pay really, really well. And you can build all kinds of hours, that fossil fuel client. Um, and if you're representing environmental, environmental interest, it's a little bit different. I mean, yep. you know, and so... That's a, but that's a choice that you can make. And for me, that's a choice that, that I made. And um, I still make a living, but I'm not going to be getting a second house in Aspen anytime soon, that's for sure. But and, you're also uh, not degrading our environment either. And, it, and, and, and it, it allows me to do what I think is right. And, you know, one of my tests of how I act is to um, think about how I would explain what I'm doing to my daughters. And if, totally. if I'm explaining something that would embarrass me or I'd have to do a caveat, and basically say, well, I represent this client, but, you know, it provides us with this house that we live in or it provides us with with uh, this vehicle that we're driving or whatever. You know, I don't want to have to be in a position where I have to think about whether or not that's really the right thing to do and to encourage my daughters to do. So that's just the choice that I made. But everyone can make a choice like that. And it doesn't yep. require us going back to the Stone Age and saying we're not going to have something. We're not going to have a vehicle. I mean, we have electric vehicles and they're even better than um, gas vehicles now. Right. And, um, so that's just one example of, you can still have a vehicle. You don't have to walk everywhere. Um, but, and, and there's so many other examples of it too, but you have to make that kind of specific choice. This brings me though to something you said before, which I totally agree with, which is when, um, sometimes people are, you know, shaming people for using plastic bags or yeah. trying to convince people to, to not use single use plastics. That's all good. I totally believe in the personal responsibility part, too. We all have a role to play. Yep. Often what has been shown, though, is that's been a category or some kind of marketing scheme by yep. fossil fuel companies to divert attention. And um, or, you know, a company that makes a gazillion um, single use plastic bottles and then they talk about how they recycle, you know, 500,000, but that turns out to be less than 1% of a gazillion. <laughs> and um, yep. so we have that all the time. That's ever, I think people know that as greenwashing. So, you know, the second aspect of uh, ESG, environmental social governance, is guarding against the greenwashing. And so we have to be even smarter consumers and really guard against some of the claims that the companies would be making and, and double check them. It can't just be good enough for a big company to say, uh, you know, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050, they have to back it up and actually right. show they're going to be carbon neutral. And if part of carbon neutrality is investing in forests in California that are just going to burn, that's not going to cut it. Nope. <laughs> and so um, we definitely have to be aware of all of those things. It does come down to all of us, but um, 
it certainly does come down to the big companies too, because they have the gazillions of dollars. You know, they have they have tons of money and tons of influence, tons of history with the fossil fuel industry in particular. They have over a hundred years of history on their side. They have trillions of dollars of investment on their side. They have the knowledge, they have the networks, they have the lobbyists, they have the lawyers, they have all of that stuff that's born from having all those years of history and all that investment on their side. But that doesn't mean that we can't compete and it doesn't mean that we can't win, mainly because the stakes are so high. The stakes and are so I think high. As time goes on, people are going to see climate hit them in the face more and more. It's not yeah. going to be just something that they're like, oh, that's too bad that all those people are starving in whatever country. It's going to be, I know a family farmer that had to give up their farm because there's no more water for the farm. Yep. Or it's going to be their house they can't insure in the mountains. Or it's going to be going out and uh, like what happened to me recently where I uh, was driving to Durango for the first time in many years and drove over Wolf Creek Pass and saw just the beetle kill devastation over around Pagosa and around uh, Wolf Creek Ski Area that I didn't remember being like that at all just, you know, five, ten years ago. But now it's almost desolate up there because of the beetle kill. So the types of things like that I think people are going to see more and more of. Let's just hope that enough people wake up and do something about it before it becomes um, truly catastrophic. Right. So on that note, I mean, you do represent some really incredible nonprofits who, from my understanding, it, each one of them are sort of tackling one of these sub-issues. And so just sort of generally speaking, what are some of the really impactful initiatives or organizations doing? Where are some of the main target areas? Like what as, as Colorado residents and consumers should we be, like, you know, help direct our attention to things that we should be looking at if we're not already looking at? Oh, so are you talking about which organizations to support or just kind of the issues that they're doing that, um, yeah. Both, both. Make some recommendations okay. as to the ones that you think are doing a lot of good that could like maximize bang for the buck in terms of dollars or human power invested, as well as what are the issues right now that have risen to the top that these organizations who are truly on the front lines where they're like, oh, this is, this now just became our focus that we yeah. may be totally unaware of. Well, so I'll give you two examples off the top okay. of my head with a disclaimer, which is they've both been clients that I've represented. So, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm advertising that too much, but um, one of them, I've always been impressed with Earth Justice. Okay. They are, um, they, they, they call themselves the Earth Lawyer, and they're a group that um, takes on clients and causes at no charge to the clients and causes. They're Amazing. a nonprofit. They have to fundraise in order to be able to maintain that infrastructure, but... They put out some really, really good stuff, um, really smart, you know, really good lawyer stuff. They can compete with the fossil fuel interests um, when it comes to any kind of legal issue. And so they've always been very impressive. And Sierra Club, of course, they're national, but they have ch state chapters. They have a Beyond Coal campaign. Um, actually, no, it's now it's called Beyond Fossil Fuels because it's not just about coal. It's also about oil and gas. And um, that's nationwide, but also in Colorado. And I know that they do some good work and. And um, they kind of, they, they push the issue too, because, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago, people would have thought it would be crazy to think about 100% renewable. Um, but you need groups like Sierra Club and, and many others that are doing similar work to really push that Overton window and make sure people think about it that way, that it's not crazy. In fact, it's not. It's very realistic and it has to be realistic. 
but there's many other groups that do, I think, really good kind of cutting edge litigation. Center for Biological Diversity, uh, Wild Earth Guardians, there, and and are uh, two that that come to mind that don't hesitate to file lawsuits against state governments or mm. the federal government if they're not doing their job. I mean, we hear uh, people that are elected that sound really good when it comes to the environment, but when the actions actually happen, they're maybe not so good or they're punting it for a different day or whatever their motivation is. And we need groups like that out there on the front lines to call them to account and at least fight that fight in the courtroom. Now, what I tell people, potential clients and clients alike is, and I'm sure you know this to be true, is that the courtroom battle is an uncertain battle. You sure. may have a righteous cause, but you may not win in court for whatever reason. And so it's risky. We need people that are going to fill up that space, though, and really push it there because sometimes litigation leads to better policy and yep. better actions, even if you don't win in court. We've seen that time and time again in, in the oil and gas space, in my opinion. So um, so we need groups like that. And those okay. are just four that come up off the top of my mind that all have strong presence in, in Colorado, but there's many, many more. And um, I you know, don't want anyone to be upset that I've left them out. Because sure, I understand. No, there's <laughs> no way you could list them all. I, I totally understand good, that. There's good ones. And really depends on people's specific interests, too. You know, there's some groups that are much more interested in the litigation part. There's some groups that are much more interested in the advocacy. Mm -hmm. There's some groups that are more interested in the policy. Um, there's some that try to combine all three. And it really kind of depends on where you are. You know, there's some people that want to kind of play a more, I think, you know, conservative role as far as like not being out there and, and, and suing the government. And there's some people that have no problem with that. So I think it just really sure. depends on what they want to do as to what group that they should be involved with. It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, it didn't occur to me when I was in law school that the courts would be where a lot of our climate health battles would eventually play out. I mean, I can honestly say that as I sit here is it didn't really occur to me that many of these issues surrounding the uses of our resources would ultimately be things that we would be chasing in a courtroom. And, um, and it may very well be where most of these issues end up playing out, um, because it seems like that's kind of the final stop for these issues when we're not able to reach other agreements. It may be, although I hope that it doesn't. And the reason why I hope it doesn't is because I feel like if it's in the court, then it's a failure of policy. And it's a failure of being able to pass strong enough laws that are enforced by the executive branch. Makes sense. So um, and, and the courts, they're one, one area that you play in. But um, again, in my opinion, and I, I think that it you have to play there, but it would be much better to play in the policy area and to pass good laws and good regulations to begin with. And then begin with. play defense in court, because if you manage to get good laws or good regulations passed, then you know the fossil fuel industry is going to use the court system to try to overturn sure. it. They do sure. that, and they're effective at it. But playing defense in court is a lot better than playing offense. It's a lot easier. And uh, defending something is just... Uh, not as likely to go sideways as, as trying to overturn something. At least that's, that makes total sense. That's been my experience. So give us an example of a really great policy or law that we have here in Colorado that may be as recent as when you were just in the, legislat the legislature that, that you really think is helpful for us, that protects us or protects our resources. Do we have something pretty, pretty awesome here? Yes, but it all depends on the implementation. Okay. And so the one <laughs> okay, so the theory. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the first step. It's the the one bill that I mentioned that was House Bill nineteen twelve sixty one, which de- dealt with the emissions reduction. Okay. That was a really good bill, and um, it, it it put into law the requirement to reduce emissions statewide. Okay. Uh, but I kind of talked about the implementation of that. The other one is, which I a little bit hesitate to bring up because it oh. was my bill. <laughs> well, then don't if you don't feel comfortable. No, it's okay. I'm okay. just uh, I'm trying not to, you know, make it sound like this is a the Mike Foot show or something like that. But, I mean, it uh, kind of is though. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one bill I was very proud to be a part of, and I was one of the sponsors on, was Senate Bill 181 in 2019, which dealt with reforming the oil and gas sector. Okay. And so huge, you know, backstory about that, but, you know, the, the, the 30,000 foot view or maybe the one minute summary is, is that there have been issues for a long, long time, particularly as oil and gas drilling and fracking have picked up since about 2010, 2011 in this state where, um, the, the, the system was outdated and you had these huge facilities being placed in the middle of neighborhoods and, and communities were being affected in a terrible way. And, of course, nobody can really do much about it because the law allowed it. And so myself and other legislators, when we, when we started in the legislature back, you know, when I started back in 2013, we tried to pass laws to address it. The industry was very powerful. They had a great lobby, great lobbyists, um, and they were able to kill all those bills. But finally, a lot of things lined up, and, and um, it seems like we had one of those moments in 2019 where we could actually pass a very good bill that would reform the system, and so we did. Okay, great. So we celebrated that. You know, we are, we're very proud of the fact that we passed this bill. The industry claimed they were going to lose all their jobs within 24 hours, oh, wow. and I mean, it wasn't quite like that, but I'm exaggerating a little yeah. bit, but that was pretty much the commercials they ran against it. Um, so... It, Anyway, it 